Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. As we do every week, we have a brand new guest talking about their background in martial arts and, and how it kind of affects your everyday life and, and anything else we can think to talk about and everything in between. Our guest this week I'm very excited about. Uh, this person is a very successful business person. Actually, in 2013, was on the Forbes list for 40 women to watch over 40. So that's really cool. That's quite an accomplishment. She was also the first American to win gold at the World Judo Championships in 1984. So please welcome to the show this week's guest, Anne Maria DeMars. I hope I pronounced that correct. Yes, that <laughs> okay, was very good. Perfect. Welcome to the show and thanks for agreeing to do this. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Cool. So let's just kind of like I do with all my guests, go back to the beginning. What I, I know, if I remember correctly, I read that you started around age 12, but what first piqued your interest in martial arts? What made you, was it your decision? Was it your parents' decision? What, what made you take that first leap into the world of martial arts? You know, I always tell people I should come up with a good lie for this because <laughs> the truth is not that impressive. Uh, I was a girl before Title IX. So Title IX was the federal law that passed that said any program that gets federal funds has to give men and women equal opportunities in sports. Right. Well, before that, most sports just didn't allow girls to play. And so there weren't very many options. And I was a short, fat little girl. And my mother, and I'm also super duper nearsighted. I have mega strength contacts. So my mom said, you can't spend your whole life sitting in your bedroom and eating and reading books. And she took me in the car down to the YMCA and pushed me out of the car and said, go join something and drove off. <laughs> wow. And back then, in the little town in southern Illinois we lived in, there were th basically three choices for girls to do sports. There was, uh, well, maybe there's gymnastics, but that cost a lot of money. We had no money, so that was out. There was swimming, which if you're a short, fat little girl, you don't want to put on a swimsuit. You know, no one wants to be the fat girl in a swimsuit. And there was track, which if you're a short, fat little girl, you don't run very fast. And I walked into the Y and I saw a girl that I re re recognized from my seventh grade class, I must have been in that did in the judo class. So I signed up for judo and I've got three brothers so I could fight and <laughs> it just took off from there. So what was it about it? Those first few classes that made you want to stick with it? What did you enjoy about it? That's a really good question. I don't think anybody's asking that. I think the main reason that I did it was just because there were other kids to hang out with. And it, it may sound funny now, but at the time we lived in a little town 300 miles south of Chicago and Southern Illinois could be pretty south, you know, mm -hmm. and the Catholic kids, I went to Catholic school, the Catholic kids and the non-Catholic kids did not hang out together. It was, you know, if you were Catholic, you went to this school, if you weren't, you went to the, the public school. And I think it was just the idea of being around other kids that weren't the same kids I saw all the time. And everybody was very nice. I think that was just enforced by 
the instructor that we had. And it's funny because years later, I ended up teaching sports psychology at what is now the University of Jamestown. And one of the things that research in sports psychology has found is that the two main reasons that kids join a sport are they make friends in it and it's fun. It's not they want to win the Olympics, they want to get in better shape or any of that. And I think that was it for me. It was fun. The instructor was, uh, he was, he had learned judo when he was in Japan in the Air Force, I think. And then he was back going to college on the GI Bill to be a PE teacher. So he was fairly competent as far as running a class for kids. Okay. It was fun and there were other kids. So do you remember then that you mentioned that not a lot for girls to do? How much of that judo class was girls? Do you remember how many other girls? You mentioned you saw one that you recognized. Were there quite a few other? No. Well, there was maybe half a dozen. It was certainly the minority. There were, in particular, I remember two other girls. They were both there before me and they stuck around for a while, probably up to orange or green belt. And then they left and I continued on. The, in, one of the instructors was the head instructor's sister, and she was black belt. And that's why he had originally allowed girls to join judo. Oh. And it's bizarro, you know, to my girls to hear, my daughters to hear about this, that, you know, we mean allowed girls, <laughs> right? That was an option. Are you going to let girls in or not? Because his sister wanted to do it. He thought, well, she should have other girls to train with. So he allowed girls to join the class. And by the time I came along, she was a black belt. There were other girls there. So it was probably a much more welcoming environment than the average martial arts school back in the early 70s. So then thinking back to that time you know, in the 70s, I know I've talked to other people who trained back then. What Do you think it was different for the girls as far as training went? I know I've, I've just told this story to someone else, even a school I, I visited in the 90s. It wasn't judo. It was a different martial arts. But I, I remember this in like 1995 in Southern California. I was visiting a martial arts school. And anytime the instructor gave the class instructions on what to do, he then cut the number in half for the girls and said, you do half as much. <laughs> but did you did you ever witness anything like that or that never happened to me. And here's a really funny thing. I have never had a Japanese instructor, oh even God. though I trained in Japan for a year. <laughs> I mean, I've got, I've been at clubs where there were Japanese instructors, but as far as my main coach, okay. and it wasn't deliberate, but, you know, I started in the Midwest where there's not a very heavy Asian American population, even less so then. So like I said, my coach was somebody who, who had, you know, picked up his black belt when he was in Japan for a few years in the Air Force. And then I was in Minnesota for a while, trying with the club there. Then I was in Japan for a year. And Margot Sathay, who was at the time the highest ranking non-Asian woman in the world, was at the Kodokan and ran a class for women who were interested in competition. So there were a couple of girls that were Japanese there, um, Hiromi Fukuda and Michiko Sasahara and me, and a couple of other Americans, I think, uh, and a woman from Okinawa. So there's just a handful of us. So Margo ran that class. And I, when I moved to Southern California, I was at Los Angeles Tenry Dojo, which is a very traditional Japanese club. But at the time, the instructor that Tenry Japan had sent over had left. And so basically the athletes coached ourselves. Like we had some high ranking people, Steve Sack had been on the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Martin, who became my main coach, had been on the world team, I think seven times. So I was never in one of those traditional clubs. Okay. So that actually kind of, well, something you mentioned there about you know, when you were training in Japan kind of brings up my next question. Uh, you mentioned, you know, specifically for people interested in competition, what was it that drew you to competition? I, I know a lot of people who train in judo and don't compete or don't choose to compete. And I'm sure that was something, was that something that the club you were at really pushed or was it just something you decided you wanted to give a shot and try to compete? I think it was more me. 
because people went to competition from our club, but it was not a big thing. For one thing, it was a small club in a small town and the adults, the seniors, they all had full-time jobs. So this was something they did, you know, three times a week, twice a week in the evenings. And because I was in, in, you know, at first in high school, then college, of course, I had more free time to travel and do things than someone who has a full-time job working in an office. Right. I, it's funny. That's another thing I don't think anybody's asked me. So you're batting a thousand because I've done a zillion <laughs> interviews and people going off and ask these things. The first time I ever heard there was national championships, I decided I was going to win it. Oh, nice. And when I heard there was U.S. Open, I decided I was going to win that too. And I did win the junior nationals, the senior nationals, the collegiate nationals, the U.S. Open. They did not add girls to the high school nationals till after I graduated from high school or finished high school. I left high school um, at 16 and went to college. So I just decided I was going to win. And here's a funny thing. Uh, I have often believed that your advantage, your disadvantages can be advantages. So for me, my mom didn't have money to send me to Europe to train. I got to go to Japan because I got a scholarship in college to study abroad, but she didn't have money to send me to these tournaments when I was younger. The only, the only way I got to the senior nationals was I won the Illinois State Championships and the Chicago Judo Black Belt Association paid my way or I wouldn't have been able to go. The only way I got to travel in Europe was Frank Fullerton and Bruce Toops, who were two guys in USA Judo at the time who were very patriotic. They bought my plane tickets or I never would have been able to afford to go. So the advantage to me in growing up without any money is when I was young, I was beating everybody in the local area. You know, it's probably the toughest orange belt around, right? But I thought I was I was the next great thing because nobody beat me. And if I had parents with more money, they might have sent me to Europe, they might have sent me to training camps, but that was not an option. So then as I got better, I was able to catch a ride with somebody or hitchhike. Uh, I hitchhiked to a lot of tournaments, which is crazy to think of when I was like 15, 16. You know, hitchhiked to the state championships and, and went. And because I couldn't afford to go to tournaments unless somebody else was paying, generally people aren't paying unless they have a good shot of winning. So I didn't go to the nationals. The first time I went to the nationals, I placed third. Uh, the second time I went, I placed fourth, which was a, a rude awakening for me. And so that taught me I bet I better train a little bit more. And then I came back and I went first every other time I competed. The first time I went to the US Open, I got second. And I was 17. And then the second time I went, I was 19. I won. So because I didn't have a lot of money, I was usually winning everything in the local area before I could go to the regional area. And then I was winning everything in the region before I could go to the nationals. And I think that was an advantage to me. I think too many kids, at least in the U.S., are pushed too fast. And then they end up not having the confidence because they've been beat down when they were young. That's actually really inspiring. So you kind of, something you mentioned made me kind of chuckle a little. Now, as a mother yourself of daughters, could you imagine letting your daughters hitchhike to competitions when they were <laughs> the same age you oh, were? Oh, hell no. I mean, there are so many things that I did that my daughters didn't find out until they were older, fortunately, that there's just no, absolutely no way. I mean, Rhonda will tell you, I think the first sleepover she had was with um, Pauline Macias, who is now a UFC fighter, and they were probably 
13, 14 years old. And that's before I would let her sleep away from home. <laughs> that's funny. So to back up just a little, think back, what do you remember about your very first competition? I'm kind of curious about that very first one. I'm assuming you were probably an orange belt the first time you competed. I think I was a yellow belt. Okay. I was 12. And the reason I could go is at, I think they did it once a year in the little town I lived in. They would have a judo tournament. I think this was probably the last time they did it. So it was in the town where I lived. I was 12 years old. I could walk there. So I walked up to the same place. I always did judo. They had the tournament in the gym. I went in. I fought. I got first place. I walked home. So now how were your parents? I mean, did your parents support this? Did they come and cheer you on? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) My parents thought judo was the biggest waste of time ever. Um, I... I won the junior nationals when I was 16. Um, I checked down there, of course, and I was in college. So I hitchhiked down to the junior nationals, got first place, called home, told my parents, and they yelled at me because why wasn't I at college? So it was in the summer, but I was taking some summer school classes. Um, and so I was very upset and I called my big brother who also was in college. And he said, hold on a minute. And this is back in the day when you had, you know, we had, you had a pay phone in the dorm because cell phones had been invented. And this long pause, like a very long pause. And he comes back and he lived in a high rise dorm. And he said, I just went and knocked on every door and told everybody my little sister won the national championships. <laughs> so my brother was awesome. No, my parents thought sports were a big waste of time. It was never going to bring you any money. And why are you doing it? So how long did it take them to come around or did they ever? <laughs> My father never did. Okay. My mother, in fact, I called him up one year. So I won the junior nationals when I was 16. Uh, I called and I won it again, I think, when I was I won it again when I was 19. Might have won another time in between. Anyway, it's been a long time since I was a junior. <laughs> so I was I called my dad up when I was 19 and I said, Dad, the senior nationals are in April. I think you might, I think I'm gonna win. You might want to come. And he says to me, Amaria. I have no interest in judo. Why would I drive 300 miles to watch a tournament? And I said, if you can't think of a reason, I can't either. I'm hung up on. Wow. Um, my mother, on the other hand, drove me to the tournament. And she said years later that she really loved it when we would go to tournaments, but she just didn't have a lot of money. And I think it's maybe hard for people who grew up in more privileged environments to understand that even having the money to pay for gas to drive to a tournament was often outside of our budget. So it was very seldom she could go. And usually I would just hop in the car with some other parent that was driving. But she said she loved it when she could go. That's good. Now you mentioned you you, you did the year in Japan. Um, and first when I read this, I thought I was reading it wrong because you mentioned you graduated high school early and started college early. And when you were 18 years old and in Japan, you were a junior in college at the age of 18, which is just completely crazy to me. But just talk about that year in Japan. How was the training in Japan compared to the training in U.S.? Was it comparable? Were things done differently? Oh, no, it was much tougher. So it was great. I Here's the thing. I knew nothing, right? I'm 18 years old. I go to Japan because I want to do judo. So a lot of people that study abroad, they pick a country because they're interested in the literature or politics or economics. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to do judo. And I went to the dean of the school of business. And this is before Japan had become a big powerhouse in business, right? So made in Japan was sort of a, a shorthand for it was cheaply done. Mm-hmm. So this is way back. So I go to the dean of school business and I say, I would like to apply for one of these scholarships to study abroad. And he says to me, usually those are done by people in liberal arts. No one from the school of business has ever done this. But then he says to his undying credit, 
that doesn't mean you can't. And he signed the paperwork and off I went. Nice. So I got a scholarship. So I was able to go. And I didn't know anything about Japan other than judo was there. So I, like I said, I'd never had a Japanese American instructor. I'd never had a Japanese instructor, unlike a lot of you know martial arts people. So I show up and going to Waseda University, which is a very good academic school. They have a judo team. And I go in and I see all these judo people. It's all guys, right? And I asked the judo instructor, the judo coach, can I work out with you guys? Now, this is kind of like unknown to me, some young woman from Japan dropping into USC and asking the football coach, can she train the football team? <laughs> and so the assistant coach says, absolutely not. You know, like yells at me, absolutely, there's no way you can train this. Well, now Japan is very hierarchical. And so the head coach, sees this and he's very offended because it's his place to say and not his assistants, right? Mm -hmm. So he comes out and he says, yes, you can. So then I'm on the mat. Like, and I didn't speak Japanese that well and like had like a year of it or two in college. So very clueless, but they, you know, the guys, none of them had probably ever worked out the one before, but they did judo and they did not treat me any differently. I got slammed around a lot. Nice. But then there were a couple, like I do remember, and I'm trying to remember the one of the guys was in his fifth year. So he was, or I think it was in grad school. So he'd been four years on the team and now he was in dental school or something. So he was a really good judo player, but he couldn't compete in the tournaments, you know, cause he used up his four years of eligibility. He was a grad student. So he helped me a lot. There were a couple of people who really went out of their way to teach me. And it was just really tough practices. So I did judo at Waseda University, my, at my university. And then I went to the Kodokan, which is a place where judo was founded. Yep. And they had a separate women's division. And that's where I met Margo. And so there were a lot of other women to train with there, which was really interesting because I think the only other, I'd probably had a handful of women, brown and black belts to compete against before I moved there. So that was great. And then Margo was amazing. I mean, she's an example of, she died a few years ago, cancer. It's very sad. But she was an example of people who, you know, kind of missed their time because Lord, she could have won the Olympics. She was the best woman I have ever seen on that. Wow. So did you compete at all when you were in Japan? No, they wouldn't let me. They only had oh. one tournament a year for women. And then you had to be at least a second degree brown belt for it. And then, so I was all excited. Well, I didn't know that. I knew they had one tournament a year. So I was all excited. I was going to enter this tournament. And then I came up. And they said, no, you can't because you have to be at least a secondary brown belt and you're not. And I said, what do I need to do to be a secondary brown belt? Well, you have to do this, these katas. And so there are a couple of my friends, the other two Japanese women who were in the, the competition class. They're like, oh, we'll teach you, we'll teach you. But then the head instructor, they really did not approve of me, some of these older instructors. Some did, but some didn't. And the head instructor was like, no, you can't because you would have had to take the test so many months ago. And so, no, they didn't let me compete at all. Oh, man, that's too bad. <laughs> right. And I think that's why I, when I came back, I didn't place in the nationals. And I think that's the only time I ever competed in senior nationals I didn't place because I hadn't, hadn't fought a competition in a year, but that's all right. I got them back. Okay. Then obviously you came back and, and, and finished college and, and, you know, like I mentioned in the intro, you went on to become very successful in business. You know, obviously you started having successes in, in, in business and everything else. What made you want to keep competing in judo? I think I wasn't done. When so I went, I wanted to win the nationals. I won the nationals. I wanted to win an international tournament. I won the US Open. And then there wasn't anything else to win. There were other international tournaments, but it's sort of like once you've done something to prove that you can do it again, not so much, right? right. So I 
quit competing. I went to graduate school, got my MBA at the University of Minnesota. Then I was on vacation. I get a call from my friend, Rebecca Scott, who my daughter, Julia, is named Julia Rebecca after her. So Becky and I were we training partners for years, we've been friends since we were teenagers. And she called me up and she said, get back on the mat. They put women in the world championships. There's going to be a, an Olympic festival. They're flying the top women in. And since you, it's, you have points from the years you were competing, you're in, get back on the mat. So I'm back, started training again, started winning tournaments again. And then uh, the world championships, the first ones were 1980 and I was in grad school. So I didn't go. So I figured, okay, well, I'll go to the next one. And then in 82, I got pregnant with Maria. So I didn't go then either. (laughs) And I had to, when she was eight weeks old, I think I had to win US Open to to pick back up my number one spot. And I did, which is insane when I think now about winning the US Open eight weeks after giving birth. But yeah, I did. And then that was it. I never lost to an American again. I did a clean sweep of all the U.S. tournaments and went to win the Pan Am Games and the Austrian Open and the Pacific Rims and the Worlds. Then I came back and went to grad school. So the Worlds you won, where where was that uh, one held? Where is that competition held? In Vienna, Austria. Oh, nice. I'm assuming you got, obviously you competing, you've got to travel all over the world. What are some of the coolest spots you just, as far as not the competition itself, but afterwards, you know, some of your favorite places you got to visit because of judo. I know because of your business, you traveled many other places, but because of judo, what are some of your favorite places you've got to travel to? I think Hong Kong was pretty amazing. Now I'd like to see it now after the changeover to with Beijing, but mm-hmm. at the time there were so many people actually lived on boats in the Harbor and you would be on a boat and a grocery boat would row up to you selling groceries and a restaurant boat would row up to you. And, there are people that was it. They lived their whole lives on these boats. So that was pretty amazing. And just being able to go around the city, wherever I went, I tried to make some time since I always had to run to cut weight to be like running around the parks or the lakes or just to see what it was like and to spend time walking around, not the tourist areas, but just walking around the neighborhoods and going to the local restaurants and stores. But yeah, uh, Hong Kong is a pretty interesting place. And Caracas, Venezuela was another one. And then after you, you know, stopped competing, now did you did you coach quite a bit also? No, not really very much until Rhonda started competing. So I taught judo at um, it was Jamestown College then. Now it's the University of Jamestown where I was a professor. So I taught judo there just as a college class. I would drop into my friends' clubs and coach every now and then. But I, you know, after I quit competing, I started on my PhD right away. I had. Uh, Jennifer, two years later, I had Rhonda the year after that. So by the time the 88 Olympics came around, I had three children, five and under. Wow. I guess, yeah. So I was pretty busy. So I would drop in every now and then, but it wasn't until Rhonda, when she was 11, started, you know, that I started coaching her and coaching at the local clubs a lot. And then I started in... Uh, 2009, Rhonda was teaching at a club here in South Los Angeles where her sister had been a, a teacher, a student teacher in history. And Rhonda had started this after school judo program and then her UFC career took off. And I was first, I was substitute teaching for which had to be here and there. And next thing you know, I was teaching there for about the last nine years. So did all, th- did all of your daughters at least tried judo or was it was only wrong? They all tried it. Maria did it for a very short period of time. Then she picked up track 
And yeah, it's funny because, you know, her dad was the British national judo champion. I was the world champion. Everybody thought this kid's got judo in her genes. And she did it for a very short period of time and said, I want to run track. Ran track all the way through college, pole vaulted. So um, Jennifer did it for less than a year. She could have been really good. Jennifer told me, which he was probably nine, I hate all sports and you will never make me like them. <laughs> and I put her in judo and swimming and volleyball and basketball and uh, soccer. And she was right. I never made her like anything. She still doesn't like sports. Wow. Um, and then there was Rhonda who was in swimming at first and then she was in judo and did really well on that. And then there was Julia, who looks like if you shrunk Rhonda down to three quarter size, that's Julia. And she was really good in judo, won the California State Championships, won the Junior Nationals, was in it for from the time she was four until she was 11. And then she said, I want to play soccer. And she played soccer all the way through college. Okay. She just graduated from college. Nice. Curious when when the idea for the book came about. I was looking, and I believe is it just the one book that you you co-wrote with James? Winning on the ground. Yep. Um, I think Jimmy Pedro and I were just talking about how when we were younger, we didn't have a lot of help, especially we both were started coaching because I I did coach a little bit when I was up in Minnesota, going to U of M, mm-hmm. coached at the local community mm-hmm. center, but there's just a lot of things that we had to learn on our own that. There wasn't, I didn't think, a very helpful coaching program. There was some basic stuff on sort of running a class and youth development. But I mean, I had a PhD in educational psychology. I knew that stuff. But there was, there was just a lot of the technical side, things on like mat work that we had figured out on our own. And I, when I was a kid, my brother did judo too for a while. And we would be like throwing ourselves on an old mattress in the garage and looking up in Hal Sharp's book, uh, The Sport of Judo, different different throws, but there wasn't something that talked about mat work at the level that we knew it. So we wrote the book that we wish we'd had when we were young competitors and young coaches. Okay, and how has it been accepted? Well, you know, that's a funny thing. When it first came out, it was doing really well, and I kind of quit promoting it just because I've been busy and Black Belt got bought by or sold the contract to somebody else. So they quit sending me royalty checks. And to be honest, I've just been too busy to follow up with them. Oh, wow. So it was doing really well. And I, you know, they quit um, sending me checks. So I quit promoting it. And then I got busy. I mean, it was never a ton of money anyway. Right. So it, it did okay at the beginning. And I think if I had time to go and really promote it, it would do better. So if you work for Black Belt or whoever bought them, Century Martial Arts, I think, bought them. So I wrote to Black Belt and said, hey, how come you quit sending me checks? And they said, oh, now it's the Century Martial Arts people who are in charge of this. Write them. And at the time, I was you know, opening up another company in Santiago, Chile, and it was not high on my priority list. Okay. Any any uh, plans for a, a second book? Um, not at the moment. I'm trying to figure out what my next act is going to be. Okay. The company, our company, Seven Generation Games, is doing quite well. We make video games that teach math and social studies and language arts. And as you might gather, this is a good time to be developing software kids can use in the classroom or at home. Yeah, I was reading so actually that, about the website. That's a really interesting company. Yeah, so that's been like stepping up my life. We got a, a new project on that called Growing Math, which was funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to help out a lot of schools in rural areas that all of a sudden, like you, you're a third grade teacher. And on Thursday, they say, hey, you're teaching online starting Monday. 
So we're funded to work with teachers to hand them lesson plans that they can use to teach math. And they, a lot of them incorporate indigenous history. So that's a two-year project. And we have another couple of projects that are under development. And then after that, I'm trying to think, so what I'm going to do next, my daughter, Maria, is the CEO of the company. I'm the president. And Maria has been you know, stepping up to take on more and more responsibility. We are hiring more and more developers. So it's becoming feasible for me to you know, cut my workload back from 12 hours, you know, 12 hours, seven days a week to 10 hours, six days a week. And now I'm working eventually into working a lot less. Okay. And what I'm going to do after that, I don't know. What about the Julia group? Can you talk a little bit about that? And So the Julia group is basically the research arm of what I do. So I'm president of the Julia group and president of seven generation games, seven generation games, makes games, markets them, trains teachers. The Julia group is customized software and research. So for example, the games that are done by seven generation games, we would develop them and do research to see if kids playing the games actually improve their math scores or what are the things that you can tweak and change about a game that in especially education that increases perseverance that increases the probability that a kid will keep playing it and keep learning we also do customized software say you got a grant for three million dollars to reduce unemployment in the city of minneapolis then the federal government doesn't come back to you at the end of five years and say, Brian, how'd you do? Because you would say, I did great. Now give me five million. <laughs> you have to pay somebody from the outside to come in and do a research design. Here's the data we're going to collect. We're going to, here's how we're going to see how many people that you actually had in classes and how many people actually got jobs and how much money they made. And okay. so I would be the person that did that research design that maybe do the website for data collection, do the analysis comparing, you know, the improvement. It, it among the people in your program versus the city of Minneapolis as a whole. So yeah, basically anything that relates to numbers, software and research, the jewelry group will do if you pay us enough money. Okay. So as a lifelong martial artist, do you think there's stuff you've learned in judo that have really helped you in the business world? Oh, absolutely. I think there are things that apply to everybody and probably things that apply being a woman because being a woman in tech is still the, a big minority. I can't tell you the number of times, both in judo and in tech, that I have been the only woman in the room. And because all of my years of judo growing up, you know, being the only woman on the mat at the Wasi University Judo Club, being the only woman on the mat at the Alton YMCA Judo Club after the other women had quit, being the only woman on the mat at so many things, when I was in a board meeting, it just never bothered me. And there are there are people who are crazy. There are people, there's sexual harassment, I presume, whatever field you're in. There's some of that in judo as well. I will just say it flat out because I've said in affidavits, there was a, a referee, Fletcher Thornton, look it up, New York Times. He had uh, drugged and molested a lot of underage athletes. And when I was a teenager, he came up and put his hand on me. And I said, if you touch me again, I will break your fucking arm. Wow. Uh, I might've been little, but <laughs> I didn't take a lot of crap. And so when I would go into board meetings, you know, meet with investors and some investor doesn't think this is a good investment, yeah, which it may not be in their sphere. You know, people who invest in, say, med medical technology aren't necessarily going to invest in ed tech or, 
or they might think that my idea is not going to take off. I never took it personally. I was used to being in tough situations. I was used to being the only woman in the room. I was used to having to fight for things. So I think that that part of it for me, being a woman in tech was very, very helpful that I partly maybe it's that I started, I was going to say I started my first company somewhat younger. I mean, somewhat older. So I wasn't like in my twenties, but I didn't have a lot of difficulty with some of the harassment I hear from other people. And I think part of it, I wrote a blog on that, that being, um, you know, being a woman in tech, being a psycho bitch is helpful because if you met me for more than four minutes, you would know I'm not the person to try something on. And even at my old age, a lot of it has to do, are you willing to drop down and fight? And so not that I got into a lot of physical altercations or any in tech, but I didn't run into some of the problems that I've heard from other women. So that was a good thing. Um, I think I had more, I felt more at ease in being in a team of all men. I've been in situations where somebody said, you know, suggested going to a, a strip club or some kind of place like that. And I'd say, you know, I don't think that's appropriate. So I, you know, have felt very comfortable speaking up and I don't blame men for everything. Right. Cause I get tired of somebody's women like, well, he said this and I felt uncomfortable. Did you say anything? You know, you're 35 years old. Use your big girl words. So I, I think sometimes there are women who think that because they felt bad about something that everybody should have ESP and know that. So I'm not saying that there aren't jerks in tech because there are. But also, if something bothers you, be a woman, stand up. So um, I think there was that part of it certainly helped me from judo. I think the part of from judo that would help anybody, man or woman, is running a tech startup, I can't speak for other types of startups, but running a tech startup is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You read about all these people, oh, and they were an overnight success, but then you also read they were a serial entrepreneur. Well, what that means is they probably start up one company that made some money, but not was super successful. And they started another company that failed, and they started this company, and finally they ended up you know, being successful. That's not an overnight success. Like in my case, we started, we didn't change the company or fold or anything, but we started up the Julie Group doing customized software. Um, before that, I had started Spirit Like Consulting with two friends of mine, Eric Longy and April St. Pierre from the Spirit Like Nation. So we did that for years. Then I split off the Julie Group. That was in, so 2001, I think was Spirit Like Consulting, 2004, maybe, no. I mean, 2004 was Spirit Like Consulting, 2008 was the Julie Group, and then we spun off, Dennis and Maria and I started doing um, Spirit Like, or Seven Generation Games kind of as a side hustle in 2012, did it kind of in our spare time, incorporated, went all in in 2015, and now we're up to 2021. So from my very first company until now, when we're doing quite well, we're 17 years. From when I walked on the mountain judo when I was 12 to when I won the world championships was 14 years. So I think what it helps anybody with is you realize if you were successful in martial arts, you don't go on the mat and do 50 Tacomis and tomorrow you're going to win in tournaments. 
Okay. So as another question for you, as a parent, uh, and I'm sure you've probably been asked this tons of times, but a friend or a colleague or someone approaches you and just asks for advice. They're, either they themselves are thinking about getting involved in martial arts or maybe they want to get their kids involved. What type of tips or advice would you give them on like maybe what to look for in a school, what to look for in an instructor? Well, the very best advice I got was from Jim Pedro Sr. And this is when Rhonda was a white belt. And his son, Jimmy Jr., I think he got a bronze medal in, in the Olympics. He hadn't won the world yet. And I ran into Jim when I was at the high school nationals coaching, and I was surprised he even recognized me. And I said, my little kid started judo, and I think she's going to be kind of good. And I hear your son's doing well. Do you have any advice? And he said, always ask yourself, are you doing this for you or doing it for your kid? And if you can honestly say you're doing it for your kid, even if you are wrong, you know, people make mistakes, you'll have a clear conscience. And there are times when I've asked myself, am I doing this for me or am I doing this for my kid? So, and a lot of people say that, but there have been times when Rhonda has left clubs because I didn't think it was the best for her and people were angry with me about it. Or I let her make decisions about things. And if I thought it was the best for her, I agreed with it and I let her go ahead and other people were angry with me about it. Often people say that they're, child is their biggest priority but when it comes right down to facing down other people you know well how come they're not training at my club well because you don't have enough people her size that are competitive to push her okay or you know because she needs to work on grips and that's not your strength nice so kind of a few few fun ones maybe to, to, to wrap it up. I'm kind of curious. Is there a, a martial artist that you've looked up to throughout your career, you know, one or two that really stand out? Well, Margot Sathé was definitely one. Okay. And she, first of all, <laughs> I have worked out with a lot of people around the world. Mm -hmm. And most of them on the mat I could beat. I mean, now I'm old. But when I was young, you know, my mat work was pretty good. That's what I wanted with them. And even the people I couldn't beat, I could give them a, a run for their money. I don't care how big they were. No. Margot kicked my ass every day. <laughs> I mean, and that is, that's not an experience I had with anybody else where she could turn me every way but loose. I mean, there are people who they might have had one move I couldn't beat. or And usually if they did, they were way bigger than me. She wasn't that much bigger than me. She might have had, you know, 20, 30 pounds on me. But yeah, she was really good. And the other thing was as a person, because I was 18 years old, I knew everything, right? I was smarter than God. I was an 18-year-old college junior. So I decide that at the end of the year, I'm going to drop out of college and stay in Japan and train. And this might have looked good for Margo, right? I mean, I could have gone to tournaments. I would have won. She would have looked good as a coach. And she said to me, no, you're not. And if you do, I'm not going to train you. And I know the reason you're staying here is to train with me. Wow. She said, if you look at my credentials, what have I got? You know, my, the only degree I have is fifth degree black belt. The only job I can get is teaching English in Japan. She said, you have an opportunity. You're at a really prestigious university. You've got one more year of college. You go back there, you graduate. And then if you want to come back here, I will train you. Well, I went, I graduated. I got into grad school. I, you know, went on and did other things. I never saw Margo again. Oh, wow. But she put my well-being ahead of her prestige and reputation. And that's the kind of coach I would like to be. That's great. 
So this is a question I ask all my guests might be a little different with you because of your connection, but I'm just curious your thoughts on, on MMA and how that's come into the martial arts world and changed martial arts. Obviously you have a different outlook with your daughter having competed in it, but just kind of curious your thoughts overall on mixed martial arts and, and its connection with martial arts in general. MMA as a general rule is a business and I have nothing against people running a business and making money, but you need to understand that it is a business. So many people confuse business and sports and love. <laughs> I, I'm trying to say, and I don't mean this in any pejorative way whatsoever. If you're working with a promoter, if you're working with a coach, they are in it to make money. They are not your friend. They are not your family. Now, if you're in it to make money too, that's fine. Just understand what the priorities are. I mean, I think Rhonda was very brilliant. She made a lot of money. She got the hell out. She invested well. She is set for life. And if random people on the internet don't like her, I disagree with a lot of things about Conor McGregor, but he did make one comment I agreed with. I'll wipe away my tears with my money. (laughs) So it's a business. There's nothing wrong with business. Just understand when you're in business and when you're not. So do you have a favorite martial arts book? Martial art, besides winning on the ground? Exactly. Besides your own. I always, always got to exclude the ones you've written. But other than that, do you have a favorite martial arts book? I like Sport of Judo. Hal Sharp wrote it in the 1950s. It's Kobayashi and Sharp. It was the first judo book I ever read, and I still have it. Oh. When my dad passed away and my mom was moving out of her house in Illinois to Florida because everybody's grandmother needs to live in Florida, she said I could take anything I wanted, and that was what I wanted. So, okay. Board of Judo by Kobe Ashton Sharp. Cool. And then final kind of two-part question. Do you have a favorite martial arts TV show and or favorite martial arts movie? Maybe it may be a guilty pleasure or something. Boy, you know, my kids will tell you, I never watch TV. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I work. That's what I do. I, yep. um, I kind of got that feeling when we first chatted that you, you probably don't have much time for TV. But. No, I mean, I watch anything the Diaz brothers are on. Because they're very fine young men. You know, some people are very, very different from their public persona. Yep. And they're, they've always been kind to my daughter. Their mom's been kind to my daughter. So anybody who is a good person when there's no cameras around. So, yeah, if they're fighting or something, I watch it. Okay. Sure them. <laughs> That's about it. And no movies either? Yeah, I don't really watch movies. The only thing I've watched lately is the Mandalorian thing and somebody in there did an arm bar. I think it might have been Gina Carano. And I called around up and I said, that girl stole my arm bar and it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, there's actually two two very well-known martial artists in that series. That's kind of cool. They're getting some exposure on it because uh, Di- Diana Lee Inosanto is in that show too. So <laughs> very cool. Well, final comment. That was the last question. But after after having this conversation with you, which I appreciate so much, I think I have an idea for your for your next book. I think you need to write your autobiography because I would buy that in a heartbeat. You have had such an amazing and inspiring life, and I'd, I'd love to read the whole story. Uh, people always say that I tell them I'm waiting for the statute of limitations to run. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, I just I just want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, uh, Anne Maria, for for taking the time to do this and and chatting with and, and getting to know you. I've, I've truly enjoyed it, and and any. I will be sure to put links for all for your book and for your companies and everything you're involved with in the show notes when the episode comes out. And if you have any last parting thoughts you want to leave us with, but I, I truly appreciate your time. 
I'm always looking for beta testers for our game. So if you work with kids, I would love to hear from you. We'll send them all they need is a phone or a computer or a tablet and we'll send them links and they can test our games, be the first kid on their block and try it out. And we really are interested in getting feedback from kids. Oh, cool. So okay. by kids, I mean like from eight right. and up. So we get games from eight through high school. So I, I usually have two uh, relatives who are teachers. So maybe I'll send them your way. They're um, elementary school teachers. So I would love to hear from them. What cool. state are they in? Minnesota. We just got funding from USDA to provide services for They were one of the six states, Minnesota. So I would love to hear from them. Perfect. Well, I will definitely put them in touch with you. But w- once again, seriously, thank you for your time. I truly appreciate it. All right. Well, you have a great day. I'm going back to work. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.